Yo, Sahil, uh, investment banking or venture capital? Venture capital, no doubt. What if I told you you didn't have to choose? What do you mean by that? I mean, I know someone who's done both. Who? Let's talk about it. All right. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Uninvested, the All Things Venture podcast. In today's episode, we have another very special guest to give his take on the future of crypto and and DeFi. So Abhi Srinivas is a Yale alum. In the past, he was an analyst at Goldman Sachs before moving to where he is now uh, at Insight Partners, where he has been a part of deals like Data Stealth Seed Round uh, to Certix Series B. Abhi's expertise lies in infrastructure and cybersecurity, areas we have very limited knowledge in. As a bit of background on Insight for our listeners, Insight is one of the world's most prominent PE and VC firms. They closed on a new $20 billion fund in February, and this year they're somewhere around $90 billion in assets under management. He's currently investing out of the NYC office, and fun fact about Ubi, he's also apparently an adept freestyler, TBD whether or not we're going to hear anything on that note. Uh, you know, and also is the theme with most of the guests we have on the show, he's probably around a thousand times smarter than either Sahil or I, so we are thrilled to learn from him today. How's it going, Abby? Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Thanks for coming on. Uh, so we'd love to learn a little bit more about your background, specifically, you know, starting off at Goldman Sachs. I know a lot of my friends would die to work at Goldman Sachs and then taking the pivot to Insight. What really led you to Goldman and then to Insight from there? Yeah, so growing up, to start with that, I didn't really know what finance or consulting or these sort of jobs that people tend to get out of college, taking somewhat of a business context, you know, I didn't really know about this whole landscape just because I grew up in a place called Bakersfield. It's a part of central California. So California is super big and people's normal conception is LA, San Francisco. And there are a lot of differences between those cities at all, but Bakersfield's kind of different in that it's not really Southern California. It's not by Hollywood. It's not, you know, super sunny. It's not like the Bay Area doesn't have like more outdoorsy things to do. It's not very tech focused at all. At all. It's like much more, I would say how you would perceive something like, you know, back in the day in the South to be, but sort of sliced out and placed in California. So I feel like that informs a lot of the context that I had growing up and what there was, you know, potentially to pursue. But quickly on the town, it's sort of like a remnant of the Dust Bowl back in the 1900s, where a lot of folks in the South were upended because they couldn't practice agriculture successfully due to weather conditions regarding droughts. And so they started moving westward and they ended up settling in the central California region, which proved to be a lot better for a lot of conventional farming around things like carrots and almonds. So towns like Bakersfield and towns like Fresno are sort of bigger representation of this one area. But because of that's an interesting place to grow up. It's like quite homogenous. There's not a lot of diversity and like naturally the industries, even to this day in the background still slant towards things like agriculture and oil. So that's sort of the context I'm coming from. And my parents immigrated from India. My mom is a doctor and my dad's an engineer, which is pretty stereotypical still. So despite living in that context, I was sort of always pushed to pursue something within STEM. And in high school, I feel like I gravitated to that stuff more. But I remember when I was a kid, I always liked video games. Like I'm pretty honest in saying that was probably my first reason for liking technology and liking computers. And so when I was super young, I started playing just a lot of online games on like a really crappy computer in my house and people were giving me crap today actually because I just completely learned how to type by myself when I was a kid and so I, I used like two fingers to type 
I didn't know this, but apparently people, when they use caps lock, or people don't use caps lock, they use shift type. So when they're typing sentences, like you use shift to capitalize letters and shift to like decapitalize them. I don't do that. I hit caps lock every single time. And I just learned that today. So all of this stuff was totally self-learned. And the only reason I'm bringing this up is because that was sort of how I got into like loosely technology. And then games like Minecraft, honestly, I attribute a lot of interest to because in Minecraft, I started learning that you can actually code and modify stuff within the game if you learn real life coding skills. And so when I was in sixth or seventh grade, I was lucky in that my parents could afford to send me to a coding camp at UCLA. And it was like two weeks. It was, you know, I was a sixth grader, so it was nothing complicated, but I learned how to code in C++. And then I also learned how to work a tiny bit with like Vex Robotics, which I know a lot of kids still do in high school, but I didn't go that far. But that was some sort of tiny exposure to like the fledgling interest in gaming. And then I was also super obsessed with smartphones at this time. So Marquez Brownlee is still a pretty huge YouTuber with regards to tech. And I think he's gotten way bigger now and he like talks to Elon Musk. But a long time ago when I was growing up in elementary school and middle school, he was a lot smaller, but still big. And so I used to read a lot about smartphones. So I'm all, you know, informing this context. That's sort of how I got interested in technology pretty intrinsically. And I still find it quite exciting. And then in high school, when I used to come home from like tennis practice and I had a bunch of homework still left, and I imagine you guys were in the scenario. I used to watch, like, Shark Tank clips on YouTube, and it's, like, sort of a similar idea when it comes to venture. And so, fast forward, I was super lucky to get into Yale. I didn't know what I wanted to major in, but I thought it would be something, you know, quantitative or STEMI. So, I applied as pre-med. I think the first day I decided I didn't want to do that anymore because of how much school that would be. So, I experimented a little bit. I ended up studying statistics and data science, and that has obviously now in retrospect a lot of applications towards like machine learning and AI and a lot of these more core academic concepts that are now being commercialized. And within this whole trend of going to Yale and, you know, coming from this place where a lot of people candidly don't really, you know, know what like high finance or high consulting is, um, you know, essentially, and learning about all these things in college, I saw venture capital is a pretty cool thing in that it combines a lot of this interest behind tech, but does so in a more quantitative oriented manner. And I learned that in college, I didn't really like coding as much as I like discussing more of the high level concepts around the technology that was being coded. So all in all, that's sort of how I got acquainted with what venture was. And obviously I went to a lot of standard like info sessions around consulting and banking as I started learning what those were, but I was kind of always interested in these things from a technology angle, given my background growing up. And so I was super fortunate in college to be able to study a lot of different things and try a bunch of things. Like my freshman summer, I worked at a nonprofit doing microfinance, so giving out super small grants and helping people escape the poverty trap, getting a car, going to nursing school or starting their own business. And then, you know, in some way I was able to be super uh, lucky in that my roommate in college's uncle ran a really small VC fund in Menlo Park. And so when I was a sophomore, I was like, I, I don't really know how to get a legit internship doing legit things. And he was super lucky and connected me to his uncle. And through his uncle, I effectively got an informal internship at a pretty small fund that's very active in certain aspects of software. And that was sort of my first real exposure to venture. And then beyond that, Goldman's obviously a much more you know traditional place to go. So I actually did a summer internship there, just applying normally and still having this idea of doing something in technology long term. And then, you know, Insight luckily takes folks you know, pretty young out of college. And so I found the application I applied and now I'm here and building on this whole like tech finance theme. And that was a super long-winded, like unnecessary explanation, but I'm giving it for you now. And that's sort of how I got to this point. I think a lot of people certainly, you know, they'll have that background interest in um, in tech, in investing, maybe in entrepreneurship as well. But then I, I think there's a lot of pre-professional schools like Yale, like Northwestern, where people will do that summer internship. 
and really get locked in. And so it's, I think it's super interesting, at least from my perspective, to hear that like you kind of made that leap and like you've, you know, for all intents and purposes, like been there ever since. Um, so right now, would you describe um, most of what you do and most of what you're investing in? And I guess um, the founders that you're talking to are in tech, infrastructure, cybersecurity. What, what would you say are kind of like the core verticals that you, um, you're mainly operating under? A lot of modern venture capital firms, especially the bigger multi-stage firms, are primarily investing in software companies. And these are primarily going to be software companies selling to other companies as opposed to something like Twitter, for example, that's theoretically selling to users like us. So instead as a whole really indexes on that. We invest in software companies, primarily B2B software companies, and where I tend to spend most of my time relatively in talking to companies, researching companies, finding companies, is in more of the technical domains, which sort of relates to the statistics major I ended up doing, but anything touching the developer, anything touching like a data scientist, anything touching a more sophisticated machine learning engineer, anything touching people dealing with cybersecurity, that's sort of the general purview I fall into, which now has a lot of applications, of course, to things in crypto or things in applied AI that are developing. So when you're investing in these type of very technical startups, I'll just call them for, you know, sake of a better word, how much does the founder matter? What if the founder's not technical? What if the founder comes with like some reputational issues? You know, if you have a great product, but like a not so great founder, what are your thoughts on investing in that company and yes. vice versa? So I've obviously not been doing this for too long. So I would say more of the founder qualitative evaluation is generally reserved for people that come from industries, so like operators. And this is sort of where the qualitative VC aspect kicks in as well, in the sense that a lot of these, you know, former operators also have sophisticated networks where they get a lot of feedback about certain people. So that's a, a lot more of a value judgment. But the way, in which, the way in which I view stuff is more through pattern recognition. So my job is effectively just finding a bunch of companies, keeping track of a bunch of companies, talking to a bunch of companies. And through that, I develop a lot of pattern recognition, I would say, is the one skill that I've been you know, fortunate enough to have. And in that specific frame, you can kind of see which founder backgrounds tend to correspond to you know, which ideas best. And generally, I would say it's a pretty safe assessment to say, Looking at technical companies, there's sort of an inherent barrier already to building a technical product and that your background has to sort of be like that. So there are super you know, cool examples I've come across about people that haven't necessarily worked in industry or don't have a technical background that are now running extremely technical companies. So I say, you know, probably largely it doesn't matter. But at the early stages when you're investing, as opposed to the later stages, you do have to ultimately index on like the quality of the founder, the founder's reputational history what other people say about the founder. And so that, that is quite important in a lot of VC firms. And on the point of like controversial founders, that also is sort of an inherent controversy right now. Like I feel as though broadly has tech has become a lot more mainstream and people start idolizing or looking up to certain figures that are running super successful groundbreaking companies. There tends to be a lot of controversy, obviously now, you know, in the five years and, you know, 10 years before that. And generally the, consensus view obviously is you know not to invest in someone with a problematic history but there are examples actually right now happening where founders that have founded something something you know bad happened are now founding things again and they are getting funding from certain really well-known funds and that can go back to this whole idea of outlier investing in the sense that venture capital as a vehicle is not trying to return you you know two times the money you gave them in 10 years or two and a half it's trying to give you 10x your money and so to make that return, you necessarily have to be non-consensus. And, you know, sometimes that might result in certain firms backing certain controversial founders. So I would say in general, like probably not a good idea, but there are, you know, some examples where that's happened and 
there you know might be some more positives in one direction but super case by case say you have like you know a founder he's really great he exited from a past startup and he started something new but you're not necessarily sure what the product does maybe you don't believe 110 percent the product would you still take the risk on that investment given the founder's history or do you really feel like you need to know what this startup is doing and have faith in the idea itself oh totally like it depends in that scenario but there are cases where both arise for example you know if you found did a, a super successful cybersecurity company that ipo'd in a new cybersecurity company like i think most people would be willing to write a blank check effectively at that point as long as the investment once you get to the series b series c and beyond it obviously depends a lot more on underlying revenue traction how customers are advocating for you, how big the market is. And to some extent, some of these things are more loosely judged in the early innings of things. But, you know, it depends based on how successful the founder was and how positive reputation, you know, effectively they will be, you know, there will be many situations in which they can simply raise blank checks. So it does happen. It's it's such an interesting fine line. You know, we, we saw even this year, there are founders like like Adam Newman, for example, right? Who, um, you know, he's, he's getting backed again by by, by Andreessen and, and some other firms. Um, and there's obviously like a due diligence question there, right? It's like, I mean, in your opinion, like, should there be industry safeguards, um, like against due diligence errors against like firms who are just like, okay, like this person's already been a super successful founder. Like we're just going to back them again. Like, should there be like rails around like due diligence like that? Or I, I guess what's your perspective there? I can't comment too much on what other firms do just because I don't know, but I'm pretty sure every major multi-stage firm has sort of the same checklist of due diligence items. Like everyone is doing background checks, everyone is doing accounting diligence, everyone is doing legal diligence. I think certain cases arise where certain founders or certain nascent markets get a little out of hand just because there's not as much visibility into what they're doing, maybe by virtue of the industry being very hard to understand or by nature of this founder being extremely successful in the past, you kind of just let them run with it. So I don't know how you necessarily would create institutional safeguards beyond like the traditional diligence checklist items but it all goes back to that point where you know there is a lot of inherent gain from being contrarian and, and outlier investor and in that sense where most people would probably not back a founder that's had a trouble past and you know from a moral standpoint most people probably you know might not from a you know should we back this founder standpoint probably shouldn't back the founder but there is in the opposite sphere a lot of argument to be made that if you were a super successful founder in the past and you had you know a massive exit and people view you as generational then in some view being contrarian in that aspect also makes a lot of sense so i can't comment i think on specific instances or you know specific strategy just because i don't know but i, I do see two perspectives to it i think the issue then arises when this sort of reputational risk starts leaking into the general public that's when it starts to get a little bit more properly consensus that we probably shouldn't back someone again. But in cases where, for example, most of the people that you know suffered were largely like institutional investors or like sovereign wealth funds, like generally the vehicles are already pretty well off. And like I think the risk exposure there is, you know, primarily what you're getting yourself into when you invest in venture capital, just knowing it's the highest risk, highest return asset or one of them out there. But once sort of that reputational risk starts bleeding, I would say, and impacting like people that aren't necessarily within the, the venture ecosystem and then become sort of like a public bad, I think at that point, obviously, it's a, a lot easier of a decision. I'm not sure it, if that's, you know, super vague, but that's sort of how I would think about it. No, it, it makes sense, but it, it's just, it's so tough, right? Because like VCs are the ones doing like immense due diligence. And even if the public has like a very negative perception of a founder, it's very easy for a VC firm to be like, 
no, actually, like, this is a good idea, or, like, we've acted in the past, and they're super successful, because, like, the media, like, loves to just, like, use a fear factor and, like, dramatize things and, and blow things up. Like, how much do you think VC firms need to, or at least in your in your opinion, like, remove from, from your professional life, like, how much do investors need to be, like, taking into consideration, like, the public perception versus just whether or not they think it's a good idea? From a public standpoint, I think most firms and people will probably attempt to tune that out. Like, that clearly matters as one part of reputational risk, but it really is probably context dependent on the stage you're investing in. So early on, a lot more of this qualitative feedback is pretty important, but I'm not sure how much like the general public plays into that. And in general, I would say like we've seen sort of the movement of these tech giants into the mainstream. And like, there's obviously a few key examples where that's very much the case and like everyone knows about them. But I think also like we tend to have somewhat of a maybe distorted conception of what we see on Twitter given that you guys are probably reading about VC, we're probably reading, we're obviously reading about VC pretty constantly on Twitter and other newsletters, whereas, you know, most people probably don't do that. So it's, it's a bubble in some sense. And like, you always want to be cautious of how much of that information is tainted by being like an echo chamber in some respects. So I'm not sure how much, you know, that necessarily matters. And then there was a second part of the question with regards to the diligence. It was the public feedback. And what was the other thing you mentioned? So, I mean, it was, it was I guess, like, should public perception of a founder or a company like be taken into account in that diligence process right like I, I, for example even like an industry like i'll say like you know crypto crypto mm-hmm. you know two trillion dollars investors just lost but people forget you know the dot-com crash five trillion dollars was lost so like would people backpedal from crypto just because you know consumers might be backpedaling as well so investors are going to mimic that behavior or do you still see like them being strongly you know advocating for a crypto industry the, the cases in which that matters a lot is not necessarily like I would say as much a specific founder like obviously right now there is a specific founder getting a lot of attention in the news and in that case that's you know less so like controversial in the sense that like there was clearly like a public bad done but in most cases right that would only matter if the company you're building is primarily like consumer facing when we think about what our conception of the general public is so it honestly doesn't matter right like in the echo chamber people are now saying like you know they will use Twitter more, they will use Twitter less. But in broad reality of things, if I'm not totally wrong, like most people you know, will probably use Twitter as much as they used Twitter before and they you know, really don't care who's running the company or who the specific you know, founder of a company is. But in the case of like financial institutions, just because of how important money is, like that was clearly a, a very big setback, I would say, for the industry as a whole, just because it erodes public trust. And insofar as it erodes public trust and adoption of crypto technologies with what's happening right now, like that clearly matters a lot. And we will take that into account because that's, you know, driving top line directly for these companies. Yeah, no, totally makes sense, right? Like if, you know, if there's a positive perception of a company, like even whether or not they're like necessarily profitable, that's going to drive growth. That's going to like eventually maybe drive profitability or like drive a potential investment. So I think that totally makes sense. We are approaching time, but I'll be a question that we have to ask all of our guests every time they come on um, that we're not going to ask you is what is one routine or staple that you follow throughout the years that you think contributes to your success or, or really just who is Ubi? Sal was talking to me a little bit about this earlier, so I might steal a tidbit of it, but I've sort of had the same nightly and morning routine forever, at least during like the weekdays or when I have class in college is like the night before I sleep, I always like put out what I'm going to wear and like my socks. And it's not like I'm very fashionable because I'm not, it's just like, I'm very organized. So I like put out exactly what I'm going to wear 
So I then wake up and I just have to take a shower and I tend to take like pretty long showers, like hot long showers. And then I wear that exactly. And then I eat the same thing effectively every morning, which is usually a cliff bar or I think it's evolved into a healthier version now. I eat a kind bar every morning. And then in high school, it used to be a Rice Krispie treat or two or Pop-Tarts. So it's, it's gotten healthier. And in college, it started to be an iced coffee. And I still do that every morning. And so I think the name of my game is probably in the morning routine, like consistency and organization. Because I just like very much live in a routine. And that has always sort of been part of my process. And I don't like dealing with things in the morning. And so having things ready to go and knowing what I'm going to eat and drink, it sets me up for the rest of the day and gives me like a little quick start with the coffee. So that's what it is. Got it. Got it. So Cliff Bar, coffee, keys to success. Yes. Going to have to try that out this week. We'll see. Maybe we'll do well in finals. We need, we need, a, cli- we need a Cliff Bar sponsor for Uninvested already. <laughs> All right. Well, Avi, Avi, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Obviously, your insights, super valuable for us. We definitely learned a lot. Hopefully, the listeners learned a lot as well. I'm Sahil Seth. I'm Crockett Calloway. And I'm Avi Srinivas. And this is Uninvested. Thank you. Make sure to check out our Instagram at un.invested. Like and subscribe on our YouTube channel, but if you're listening on Spotify and Apple Music, please leave us a review. Thank you. Peace. This is a personal video. Any views or opinions represented in this video are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations we may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. The views expressed are for entertainment purposes only and not to be misinterpreted as actionable investment advice.